Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI communications, it's, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I am so glad that you're here for this episode of Communicate Like You Give a Damn. Now, we're really doubling down on language today with our guest, Carol. Carol, why don't you introduce yourself? And I, if you don't mind, I'd really like to just go straight into it. Sure. Good afternoon. My name is Carol Velandia. I am a linguist, a social worker, and an entrepreneur, and also a flamenco dancer. And uh, for the past uh, almost 10 years, I have, been I have been working on the topic of language access. That's what I am most passionate about, and I hope we talk a lot about that today. Absolutely. And it was, it was based on our conversation that we had where I was just listening and saying, oh my gosh, more people need to understand language access. And the impact that language has on a person's well-being is, is what you're all about, um, you know, some people hire translation services, et cetera, or even use like software and AI like Google Translate. But there is a nuance, a culture uh, nuance. There's there's the access that can, you know, mean so much a difference between night and day on, a, on an employee or a citizen's experience. And so the more and more we got into that conversation, I said, we, we just got to bring this conversation to this podcast. So thank you for recording coming in from Spain. I believe you go back and forth between the U.S. and Spain. Yes, that's right. I am uh, here for three months here in Spain, in the south of Spain, in Granada. I am learning flamenco dancing, which is another language. So I am very excited about it. <laughs> and I am coming off of my lots and lots of travels. And I've been doing so well in staying healthy and pounding echinacea and all the things. And some way, somehow, this very last trip that I'm having a break for six weeks before I travel again, and I caught something. So you get the lower registered voice of the smoky blues voice of uh, Kim Clark today. <laughs> All right. With that, let, yeah. You like that? Yeah. <clears throat> All right, let's go. So the first question I have for you is what is language access? You know, help people understand how it differentiates for other, other things. And why is it important today in today's multicultural and diverse societies? Yes, language access simply means to provide the same level of access to services that you provide to an English speaker when you're working with a non-English speaker. We probably don't hear about language-based discrimination, but we are discriminating against multilingual communities every time we deny a service simply because they don't speak the dominant language. In our case, in the United States, that would be English. So in a diverse society like ours, where we not only speak over 400 different languages, we also have approximately 26 million people that don't speak English 
at all. And um, they face worse outcomes across healthcare, education, um, legal services than the English speaking population. And that is why it's very important that we understand the concept of language access and that we make it relevant. There's so much history with how we got to be having this conversation when um, companies started deciding that English would be the language of business as globalization started to expand. And many countries started teaching English as part of primary school or elementary school. Um, and so many people born and raised outside of the U.S. have more than one language and English is one of them. And then you look at the U.S. in particular and other uh, mainly English-speaking languages, and we are monolingual. And we are expecting everybody else to speak English, and that's a, that's a form of colonialism and, and all kinds of things. And so it's an interesting topic for us as communicators who are putting out communications at a global level um, and trying to get to the point of communication. The point of communication for us as communicators, Carol, is connection. And Correct. this idea of language access is so overlooked and under-resourced, uh, you know, in, in my experience and in working with clients. So what are some of the common challenges or barriers that individuals face when seeking language access services and how can they be overcome? When we, you mentioned, for example, at the beginning, uh, all these different technologies that we have and all these different mentalities that we have around language. So we have a lot of um, resources in a way, but we actually need a change of paradigm because, and I think that's the main challenge, because most people in the U.S. In the US have the, the mentality that we speak English in the U.S., which is obviously true, but the problem is that they also think that if you don't speak English, you are not worthy of receiving the services that they offer. So we don't have that a multilingual mentality in the U.S. We think, for example, that English is our official language when they, you know, we don't have an official language in the U.S. A lot of people don't know this. And also the United States has never been a multilingual country ever. Since the beginning of our history, we were multilingual. So trying to change that paradigm, not so much that we now believe that, okay, we're a multilingual uh, community, but what to do with that is what's important. That's the challenge that um, we need to address is how do we interact? How do we um, communicate with people that don't speak English? Because as you said, the, the main point is connection. So how do we go about that? Um, so in the how is where where we fi find the, the biggest challenge that, that people have, because we actually have the resources, the laws, and we are going to talk about that. But it's a change of mentality, what I think we need to be seeking and achieving. I love that. I love that. It's a, it's a paradigm. You're absolutely right. And, and that's a part of some of us as communicators, our bias. We just, you know, we haven't been thinking about it from you know, unless we're really, really challenged and been getting some pushback from some countries who are just like, this translation is, or you're not providing, you know, access to us. Um, you know, when I'm working with Canadian clients, they always want to make sure that French Canadianism is included. 
So that was very, very purposeful, but I'll go to other uh, more global organizations and there won't be that request. You know, there isn't any kind of function, function. Like for example, just yesterday morning, I did a talk for Europe and there was many, many countries that were in uh, on that virtual workshop that I provided for the client. And uh, the client is based in Amsterdam and there was no conversation of any kind of translation services, captioning, those kinds of things. The expectation was that I, I speak English and they will receive it in English. There was actually no conversation about it. And um, I know enough in, uh, to not talk too fast. Um, you know, in my high school French, my college French and my high school Spanish, when I hear those languages spoken, you know, if they're slower, I can understand more. And I've been given the feedback that as an English speaker, when there's multiple languages to just slow down a beat, you know, not go so fast. So that's something that we can think of as communicators as well when there isn't the support. But this in some situations, in some industries, when there isn't this language access, it's, it's a matter of life or death in some situations. Let's talk about healthcare and education, legal systems. In what ways can language access services enhance inclusion and equality within these various sectors? For example, in the healthcare system, communication, again, is the main diagnostic tool. So if we are going to have a patient that doesn't speak English and we don't provide a language access in the way of a professional interpreter, that person is more likely to suffer health-related consequences and therefore worse outcomes. In fact, there is a 4% chance that uh, the, a non-English speaker suffers severe temporary harm if they don't have language access than when compared to an English speaker. So that's one, one big consequence. In the legal field, for example, there, there is a, a large amount of um, wrongful convictions to people that don't speak English simply because at the moment of the interrogation, they were not provided with an interpreter because, um, and this is one of the challenges going back to your earlier question, people think that if you are nodding, you are understanding, for example, uh, or if you speak three words in English, you are understanding and that they, therefore they can release this uh, very complicated questions, for example, in the case of a person being interrogated. And in education, of course, um, the, the, um, the way to look at it is that parents need to be participating in the children's education. So the children are going to learn the language, they're going to learn English, it's going to take a while and the tools for those children that don't speak English are necessary, but also for the parents so that they get involved with their education and then the outcomes of the children are also better. And by the way, if I, if I may mention, this is another really big challenge is that we are using children to do professional work as interpreters, right? And that is one of the most ethical, the, the biggest ethical violations that we do today is that we use children. Nobody would think that the U.S. actually uh, um, exploits children, right? That's not a conversation we even um, come across. But when you think about employing a child, and by the way, there are 11 million children that work today as interpreter, interpreters. When we think about employing a child as an interpreter in, in such a complex environment like uh, healthcare, 
for example, we're giving them a big responsibility that they, that they are not qualified to do. We can possibly traumatize that, this child. So this is this is something that we definitely have to keep in mind when when we think about all the different places where language access is key. I I really appreciate that you pointed that out because we just take it for granted. Um, it, I don't think we're really thoughtful in 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 a lot of situations. I know when I was getting divorced, um, there was the option of Spanish speaking. And, you know, anybody asked in the galley, uh, you know, it, does anyone need uh, Spanish? But it was only limited to Spanish speaking. There wasn't a, a, an, an opportunity to have various languages available. So I, I, I've, I've seen it in that kind of legal setting, but it's not nearly enough. And, and um, you know, and like we were saying, we were, we're really depending on the wrong people to do the job for us and need to be more thoughtful and strategic and forward thinking about this. So what are some forward thinking innovative approaches or technologies that have been successful in improving language access for individuals with limited English proficiency? Well, there is a ton of technology today that allows you to uh, do, um, you know, machine translation uh, to interpret, for example, remotely. Um, there is artificial intelligence that will help with that. But really what, what I think is more innovative is that we start recognizing, going back to the basics and recognizing the profession of interpreting and the profession of translating. Because those tools that, that um, we have through AI and, and technology are not enough or are not sufficient unless there is a linguist behind it because there are all sorts of uh, potential errors that can occur um, if we just let a machine do that job. So there's a lot of innovation in the language field and I'm not a, a tech person to really go into that, but uh, suffice it to say that what, what really is innovative, innovative is how we approach this. How do we use this technology for the better of, of those people that don't speak English, right? For example, today, if you had, if you were to develop a really robust language access plan, you could offer technically 24-7 access to interpret, professional interpretation services, right? You could per perhaps turn around a translation faster uh, than before, a translation that has been reviewed by a linguist, right? And why can we do it faster? Because we can use... Um, methods to do some to, to implement some automation with translation for example so the technology is there the professionals are there is how do we connect this and how we have that um, mind shift in terms of how we approach these professionals and this technology successfully and effectively you know i've been doing a number of webinars talking about AI and DEI communication. So, you know, the, the text, the, lip, the the visuals, the videos, but especially the text. When you put something in like ChatGPT, for example, you'll see the bias. You'll see the sexism if you are skilled in DEI communications and know what to look for. Some, for some of us, there can be an improvement of inclusive communications, but for the most part, I think AI is really reflecting to us because it's just taking what's, what's already out there that that human element is absolutely credible, you know, critical 
in, 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 in looking through this kind of language that's being spit. I think it's a mirror of like, crap, is that how we're talking about that? Is that what we're saying? And it's really missing the point. And we should really take that reflection very seriously and say, wow, we need to teach these data sets and teach ourselves on how to be more inclusive to avoid, you know, the bias that is inherent in these data sets that's in AI right now. And so let me ask you about, let's just kind of level up and talk about some legislation. Like where, what is that? Where is legislation and, and what role does it play in promoting language access? And are you aware of any specific laws or, or policies that have a significant impact? Absolutely. And that's such an important um, question, Kim, because we we talk about the civil rights and advocacy and all that, especially in the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging space. And um, But we don't know about, for example, how the Title VI of the Civil Rights Act protect people that don't speak English. It says that nobody should be discriminated on the basis of race, sex, or national origin. And national origin is a proxy for, for language. So in any kind of program that receives federal funding, they should have language access, a language access plan, because they should not uh, discriminate on the basis of la um, national origin. And I think more and more uh, people are raising their awareness about complaining when they are not receiving. Big news, friends. We have found a way to duplicate the content we share so it can be everywhere all at once. Announcing the DEI Communications Blueprint. <sighs> it is a three-level on-demand video course. It's 21 of the most popular topics I talk about in workshops and training sessions with clients. So by taking the video course, you will be able to apply a DEI lens to your communications, develop DEI communication strategies, gain more confidence in DEI communications, and shift DEI messaging and narratives to center outcomes, not activities and outputs. Plus, we're throwing in bonuses, webinar replays, so you get fresh, ongoing content. Go to deicommunicationsblueprint.com. That is deicommunicationsblueprint.com to get started effective communication or interpretation services or trans translation services, and they can call that discrimination based on national origin. So Title VI is, a, is perhaps the, the, the biggest piece of legislation that we have. But there is also Executive Order 13166 that was signed by President Clinton in the 2000s, which also talks about meaningful access. So it tells organizations, uh, again, that receive federal funding how to create this language access plan or how to approach a language access plan. So for example, if you are a hospital and you live in a community uh, where a lot of people from China or a lot of speak, uh, Chinese speaking people live there, then uh, it is likely that for you hospital, because you are providing a critical service and you're the community that you serve uh, speaks Chinese, is likely that for you meaningful service means having a, interpreters on staff that are 
Chinese interpreters or that your documentation and signage is in Chinese, for example. Um, so that's what executive order helps with. It tells, for example, and, and the, the responsibility is different depending on the type of services that you provide. So if you are a, a zoo, for example, yes, you receive federal funds, but maybe the service that you're providing is not as critical as that of a hospital. So maybe for you, meaningful access means having all the brochures translated. So these are two very important pieces of legislation. But there is also some state legislation that um, address healthcare as well. Um, and there is one that is um, the class standards. There is, this, there, there is a culturally and linguistically um, appropriate standards that are specifically for healthcare that tells you about how to provide effective language access also, how to consider um, the, the proficiency of the professionals doing the language access, right? Because this is another issue, is that people tend to think they are fluent uh, without ever having uh, taken a test on their fluency on the other language. And they are like, oh, yeah, no, this, this person understands because they are nodding, as I said earlier. Or, yeah, I speak enough uh, French to get by. And class standards is very specific about this. It's like, you know, you need to assess the language skills of the people serving the multilingual uh, population. So three, these three pieces of... Um, legislation are key for for uh, people working in in uh, public services but again uh, when we talk about courts is a little different and when we talk about school is a little schools is a little different but title so title six is the like umbrella piece of legislation that we have to keep in mind whenever we think about non-discriminating on the basis of language okay all right let's get into the um ethics of language access. So uh, what are these ethical considerations that language access providers and organizations should be mindful of when we're offering translation or interpretation ser services? Like what are we, what, what are the questions that we ask? What do we need to look for? And, and what kind of feedback do we need to hear to, to make sure that we are creating that connection through language access? The first thing really is to stop using children and family members to interpret for, uh, to make your job easier, right? If you are, and I see this over and over and over, professional lawyers telling me like, oh, I don't need to implement language access because uh, the patient, the person, the client will come with the, their child and the child is bilingual. And that is their language access plan. That is highly unethical for the reasons we explained before. They are minors, they, this is a professional work where, and you know, we're basically underemploying this child. And also the, the, the type of vocabulary that they might be using could be quite complex. So that's the one thing. And I, I really would leave that as the main thing because there are several ethical considerations, but that to me is the most important one. There was actually a film released a few weeks ago, I posted in, in LinkedIn on ch children working as interpreters and I was, baffled to know that that this practice is rampant so i think that if we achieve that if we if we are able to remove children from the equation we are going to be in very good shape to even open up to all the other ethical considerations that language access have i'm also thinking about sometimes when i've been in corporate environments there's been a bias towards people who don't have english as their first language when it comes to 
equating that with less intelligence and other kinds of bias that can show up uh, when somebody comes from another country and they're a doctor in their country and they come here, but they're not able to be a doctor here. There's this assumption that they are, that there's an, a, a, you know, there's a judgment um, because they don't know English, but you put me in the middle of, you know, Japan, I'm not going to be successful, you know, (laughs) and I may be, you know, judged for my intellectual value because I'm not able to speak the language there. You know, there's, there's a lot of impact and bias that, that plays into it. Um, Just people with accents. There's, there's reports that I've shared in some of the trainings and workshops when I work with clients and is really talking about the, the bias of accents and how many people I have met who have forcibly removed their accent in the workplace in order to not have harassment, um, jokes, discrimination, because it becomes, while there's the diversity and there may be accents or somebody doesn't have English as their first language, then it turns into a non-inclusive situation and then it creates an inequitable situation where that person isn't necessarily understood as well. So they don't get the promotions. They don't get the, the new project. They don't get the kind of access and opportunities that somebody else does. Um, so that's something that we really have to consider as colleagues when we're working with, with teammates and trying to find some, some more common ground and meeting people where they are. Um, I often talk about inclusive communications and when we are using inclusive communications, which should be standard in all of our communications, that we don't use acronyms, for example, um, or colloquialisms, you know, within the United States, it doesn't make sense to somebody that, that came from or is, or is currently in South Korea. Um, so we're leaving people out, you know, and that, that's one part that as professional communicators, we need to be thinking about as far as language access. Now let's talk about how language access actually relates to economic growth and development, both locally and uh, globally. So how does language access services contribute? Well, there is a plethora of um, answers to this, but of course it will facilitate international trade because we have a globalized economy and businesses are going to engage in cross-border transactions and negotiations where there is language access provided, right? And perhaps we don't have as much of a problem um, when there is commerce in the middle because they always think about communicating effectively and, and, um, you know, interpreters that work in in that field, they don't have a shortage of work, right? So it's going to be, so we, the changes that we need to to make there is just that in our local communities or in our smaller business, we could expand our businesses and, and make them grow if we were to translate our websites, if we were to offer language access as part of our daily routines. So we don't have to only uh, accept or or receive clients from the US, we can actually have clients from all over the world and that speak in all sorts of languages. I think I've mentioned the story to you uh, in a past conversation about how this lady told me like, you know what, if somebody is gonna come to my shop, they need to speak English. And um, I said, well, are you sure about that? Because, because your work might require that uh, at some point you, you have language, that you, that you bridge le- the, 
the gap in the language. And she said, no, impossible. I don't think, I don't think that's ever going to happen because I hired people that uh, managers for, for large companies and all that. So I asked her, so if a company from Spain came to you and asked uh, you, okay, you are really good about hiring the right talent. I need you to hire talent in Spain. So you couldn't say yes, because you don't have, you haven't planned for that. So you see what I mean? You can, you can open yourself to a lot more opportunities if you open the, the language access speaker in a way. So you can also attract foreign investment, um, uh, enhance, well, if, if you, for example, have a tourism company, if you have language access, for example, we actually have clients that in the tourism industry that uh, connect to our 24-7 services because they want to attract people that not only speak English, but speak a bunch of languages. So there are many, many ways to expand and grow economically with a successful language access plan. Uh, Carol, I was working with a client who had a similar situation. They were trying to attract more uh, diverse talent. They were very, being very intentional about that. And they realized that language was a barrier to attracting uh, a talent um, that they needed and wanted. For example, um, <clears throat> the, they, they were starting to just do straight translation of their communications. They weren't taking into account the cultural nuance they weren't taking into account context and they weren't understanding at first that it's not a straight translation from English to whatever. Um, well, let's, let's, let's go back to South Korean. So Korean uh, language that there, it's not, a, it's not a one-to-one, -one, um, you know, straight translation. There has to be nuance. There has to be context, for example, and it does not even have to be for employees who are located in other countries. It could be people who've come from those countries to the U S that are now a part of your employee base, and they, they, they don't understand, they don't know. Um, in this particular example, it was a client who was sharing uh, health benefits and it was about open enrollment and how what they, what they didn't take into account is that they don't actually, there's a, a part of their population that doesn't understand how healthcare works in the United States. It's different, you know, in the, their, their country of origin. And so there's, so just straight saying, okay, here's open enrollment and here's what's going on and communicating that was, it, it just, it, it, it really harmed, you know, parts of their employee population that didn't understand the context and um, the nuance of, of and, and understanding the cultural. So there needs to be that human element. There needs to be that kind of level of getting, keeping in mind that the objective of communications is connection. And what will that take? And it's not always just the translation, but that, you know, to your point, can bring in more of a diverse talent pool if we are very thoughtful and strategic and resource um, language access adequately. So I've got a couple more questions for you. What steps can individuals and communities and companies and organizations take to promote awareness and support for language access initiatives? Um, well, before, before, I just wanted to uh, comment on something that you said that I think is very, very, very important, and that is um, the human element for connection. You will never replace humans when it comes to language, no matter how advanced the lar uh, large language models are. Um, I, I work in this industry and that, that's the constant fear. And for over 
30 years, we have seen that technology uh, helps us advance and have more of translation and interpretation, but it's not replacing humans. I, I, and I don't think that's ever going to happen. It's going to perhaps make it more productive, etc. Now, answering to your questions, the steps that individuals, communities, and institutions can take to promote awareness. The first is educate and advocate. I think raising awareness about the importance of language access, it's key. There, are, well, there is a training, for example, that I, I offer, uh, just changing the level of consciousness that you have around language access. So this educational piece is key. Then collaborating with a language services providers have them sort of as one a main um, provider that you have, right? If you're a company and you want to make sure that you are actually accessible and inclusive and you have those diversity, equity, and inclusive policies, but to the people that you serve, then they create a partnership with a language services provider. Uh, I think those two are, uh, and then create policies internally. Okay, what do we do when the population that doesn't speak English approach our business? Because I think a lot of people or, or businesses don't even have this question or they dismiss the right. few times that uh, people have approached them and they don't speak English. They're like, mm, I don't know because I don't have enough of it. So create a language access policy internal, uh, internally to you. I think those are key elements. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And as a reminder, you don't have to be a global organization to have these language access policies. So there are trades that attract multilingual folks, and they could be domestic based, they could be US based, I should say. And so, you know, so it's just look at your employee population and, and get it, get a demographic understanding, get a psychographic understanding of what languages are spoken there. And you got to resource that. And, and, and I love, I love, you know, the, the recommendation, you got to put a language access policy in place. And so when we're working on diversity, equity, and inclusion, whether we are, you know, U.S. based or in English, um, primarily based country, it, we don't have to be globalized in order to, you know, to have this policy in place. When you're a global organization, a thousand percent, you need to have this policy and policies get funded. So I think it's it, that is such a huge point. And that brings us home to the question that I ask every guest. What does communicating like you give a damn sound like, look like, feel like when, come, when, it, when we're talking about language access? I think this is kind of a home run for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you are having any trouble understanding yourself, because require, remember that uh, and I have this tendency to speak Spanish, remember that language access is not only so that they access you, but that you access them. So if you really want to communicate like you give a damn, remember you are part of the equation as well. So if you are not understanding, right, be humble and request an interpreter yourself for your own sake. And that way you don't have to put the onus on the person that doesn't speak English, but perhaps they speak some English, but you prefer to speak in a language they can understand and you also want to understand what they're trying to communicate. So get an interpreter for yourself. Change uh, little little um, points of your thinking to really expand it, I think. So if you want to communicate like you give a damn, consider yourself a part of the equation get an interpreter for yourself as well when you need it. Language access is core to diversity, equity, and inclusion communications. I can't stress that enough. 
So Carol, what does your company do? What kind of services do you offer and how can people find you, follow you, et cetera? Thank you, Kim. We provide a, a broad range of language services, including interpretation in over 200 languages, remote and in person uh, for conferences and for healthcare appointments, also for the um, legal appointments. And we also provide translation of documents in over 200 languages. We do transcreation, which is something very interesting. You um, you, for example, write a, a, a story, a children's story that you want to convey in other countries with their cultural nuances. So somebody has to recreate it in that culture. And finally, I provide training to um, companies on language access, companies that want to expand their knowledge in diversity, equity and inclusion, uh, hire me to train uh, their, their employees on language access specifically. And they can find me in www.equalaccesslanguageservices.com. So it's an easy name because we are, we're all about equal access uh, language services. It's a long name, but it's, it's, uh, it defines what we do. And um, yes, we look forward to having people connecting and download our free resources. We have a ton of resources for free, like podcasts with information on the laws and regulations and also written material on that, that they can simply download from our website. Excellent. Carol, thank you for providing this service and thank you for teaching us communicators what we need to be doing and prioritizing language access as part of our DEI work. Uh, thank, thank you, you so much. Kim, for having me. I am really uh, excited that we're working together and yes, good luck with everything. All right. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Okay, so what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one-on-one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the podcast.com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening. And until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.